Hello and welcome to DW's Conflict Zone. I'm Tim Sebastian. In this edition, we're trying to shed light on Russia's real reasons for invading Ukraine and some of the apparent contradictions. My guest in Moscow fits the definition of well-connected. He's Dmitry Trenin, a former officer in the Russian army and former director of the Carnegie Moscow Center, which was shut down last April. Why did the Kremlin go to war just as the West had begun the very dialogue Putin had been demanding? Please subscribe to the podcast and give Conflict Zone a review on your preferred platform. Dmitry Trenin, welcome to Conflict Zone. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be with you. We've had almost a year of war in Ukraine, tens of thousands of people dead, many thousands more injured, mass destruction and misery. What good has any of this brought to Russia? Um, there's no good. and that, that's, that's obvious. The issue is this uh, could have easily been prevented, but it wasn't. And that makes it a real tragedy. Has Russia now bitten off more than it can chew? Uh, Russia is certainly confronting a most difficult issue militarily, politically, socially, internationally, uh, something that I think very few people um, thought that it would have to confront. But uh, it's coping, it's learning, it's improving things, but it's hard, it's going to be hard for, for quite some time, I'm sure. You say it's coping and improving things. What should we read into all the changes of command? Desperation, Kremlin anger at the failures so far? I think it would be very superficial. There's uh, certainly any amount of anger you can imagine over what's, what's happening on the ground in, in various places. But uh, I think you should read into that um, a move to streamline the chain of command, and to prepare for, I think, more decisive action. A lot of people in Russia were complaining and are still complaining that Russia is fighting with its hand almost tied behind its back. And uh, that may change with the new structure and uh, I think a new strategy that lies behind it. Moscow has been attempting to stifle criticism with the threat of up to 15-year jail sentences for discrediting the army. And yet the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov and Yevgeny Prigozhin, friend of Putin and head of the Wagner mercenary group, they haven't minced their words, have they? Is it one law for the elite and one law for everybody else? Well, I would put it differently. Uh, there's, uh, I wouldn't call it one law, but there's uh, one approach to uh, the people in the, call it patriotic camp, and another one for the people who are openly critical, not only of the uh, decisions by the commander in chief, but of the war, of the war effort. Russia is a country at war at this time, even if, if it officially a state of war or martial law has not been declared in Russia, but the reality is that Russia is at war. So no effort is being spared, I think, to make sure that this war, with all its uh, privations, misery, tragedies, and, and, and all that, does not lead to any serious 
internal destabilization. And people on the other side are certainly working to instill a measure of, a large measure of destabilization into the Russian social fabric. Yeah, but if even the patriotic crowd are saying things about Russia's commanders like, all these bastards should be sent barefoot to the front with automatic guns, you tend to wonder how widespread in Moscow is that discontent with the way the war is being handled. Well, I think you should appreciate that uh, very few people, even a few years ago, imagined that there would be anything like this war for Russia to fight. Ten years ago, the Russian, the then Russian defense minister declared basically that Europe has ceased to be a potential uh, theater of war for Russia. And now Russia is fighting a war, just imagine it, where the country whose population is believed to be officially believed to be in Russia, part of the same people with Russia. It's, uh, it's just mind boggling that uh, Russia has been able to, uh, to fight the way it has, it, it has fought over the past 11 months, given uh, the, uh, the, the relations between Ukrainians and Russians, given the relations between Russia and the West. So, you know, I, I'm not surprised at the, uh, at, the, at, at the level of anger and mutual recrimination. I'm somewhat surprised that uh, it is, uh, it's still held in check, but there's still very wide latitude that people enjoy, people on the right side, if you like, uh, that, that these people enjoy uh, when they uh, discuss things on the battlefield and discuss things at the headquarters. It doesn't uh, limit, the whole, the whole thing is not limited to just the, me, the, the two men you mentioned, but a whole array of uh, war correspondents are using the freedom, freedom of speech to the hilt, I would say. Well, what's left of it in, term, in, in well, Russian there's, terms? There's, there's what's left of it? There's been a huge clampdown on the free press, hasn't there? Been a huge uh, Well, look, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, to engage with you in a discussion about the freedom of the press or of the media. I have a very, let's say, critical view of that, uh, whether in Russia or outside of Russia. I'm not talking about that, but if, if, if you were to read, if you were able to read Russian and read the telegram channels that are available, available to all citizens of Russia, you'd be surprised at how much criticism, sometimes um, justified, sometimes unjustified, you will hear, you will read actually on those telegram channels. Dmitry Trenin, has Russia underestimated the West's determination to help Ukraine, or is it still clinging to the idea that in the end NATO will lose interest and uh, leave Ukraine to its own devices? Well, I think that uh, the initial concept of, of the special military operation was very different from what has been unfolding since maybe early March of last year. And uh, had Russia been able to achieve its goals within a couple of weeks, a couple of months, then I think uh, uh, there would not have been that much that the West would have been able to do uh, to uh, support Kiev. Uh, so this, this well, it's kind because of, it supported uh, Kiev that it couldn't achieve its goals, doesn't it? 
Well, um, not really. I think that the, again, I don't know what the, uh, the original concept was, but it looks like it was, it was more of a special operation than a military one. And um, that I think was the, um, was the cause of what happened after that. But this is water under the bridge. Uh, I think that certainly one thing was not anticipated that the West would steal or call it uh, freeze and then confiscate Russia's uh, currency reserves uh, in, in, in Western currencies. And that I think was not appreciated that the West would be able to do that because that was thought to be, you know, uh, over, over a certain line uh, that the West would, would, would do. And uh, that money was, was not called back before the start of the operation. So what that's, did, that's what did one they, piece of What did they expect the West to, to do? What did they expect the West to do? Just complain a little and, and forget about it? They well, were obviously going back, to use whatever means were at their disposal to show their uh, displeasure for the killing and the really, mayhem yeah. that Russia was causing. Uh, Tim, if you go back and read what was uh, written in the Western newspapers at the end of 21 and, and early 22, when uh, there was a lot of discussion of an imminent Russian attack against Ukraine, uh, people didn't go nearly as far as what we have seen today. People were talking about switching off SWIFT for Russia and things like that. It's, it's interesting that maybe the West was sort of luring Russia into Ukraine by uh, professing to, um, uh, to intend to do too little to help Ukraine. I don't know. I, well, this is a joke. I, I, I still, I, I just don't think that the West had at that time um, that intricate a strategy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine. But uh, well, Russia has given uh, the West a big boost. In particular, it's given NATO a big boost, hasn't it? So, uh, so it's no got exactly what that. it didn't want out of this operation well, so far. Yes, that's true. That's true in a way, but not in a very big way, because uh, frankly, uh, Russians have uh, long thought, uh, Russians, I mean, those Russians who make decisions, those Russians who are in the loop, those Russians who run the place, those Russians have long assigned uh, Western Europe, or I'll say all of Europe, outside of Russia, to uh, to the U.S. camp. Mr. Putin called European countries vassals of the United States, so there were no big surprises there, except maybe one that Germany was shooting itself in the foot by uh, revising its energy policy and ruptured its energy links with Russia. That's that was perhaps the only surprise that people. Uh, that, that, that people met in this, uh, in this time. You told people on February the 24th, so long as the war lasts, I won't say or write a word that could harm the Russian army, its leadership, or the commander-in-chief. Does that mean you repudiate all the critical views of Putin that you expressed before February 24th? Well, I stand by uh, everything I've written and I've said uh, before the 24th and after the 24th. The I, I ask because you're on record as telling the Spiegel correspondent that Russia's intervention to support the Donbass rebels was the most serious mistake of Putin's foreign policy. Do you still think that? Well, uh, let, me, let me tell you this. Uh, I'm sure that um, Mr. Putin 
believed that time was not working for Russia when he made that decision. Uh, there was certainly a need to do something about, uh, about Ukraine, about Donbass. Uh, and I think that Putin was coming to a decision. But uh, the, uh, the original concept of the operation, I don't know what it was, but it seemed to me uh, was uh, flawed. And I think this is something that a lot of people today in Russia share. But as I said, this is water under the bridge. This is not the time to criticize the, uh, uh, the, the, the commander in chief. We, have, we face a situation in which the West, the combined West, as you said, uh, is uh, up in arms against us. And we're in a proxy war against uh, the United States and its NATO partners and some other countries. And that's the reality in which you operate. I'm wondering to what extent Russia could have avoided this war if it had wanted to. In January last year, you told Commerçant that a dialogue with the West was underway. For the first time, you said, since talks on German reunification, the West has agreed to discuss European security with Russia. The United States and NATO have been negotiating European security with Russia, so the security rests on two pillars rather than one. Why launch a war then when the process that Russia had wanted and demanded was actually underway? Well, I think that uh, uh, for Mr. Putin and for the Russian general staff, the key question was whether the West would entertain and then, uh, uh, let's say, decide on uh, the idea of uh, no NATO membership for Ukraine and no NATO presence in Ukraine. That was key for Putin. Again, it may have been key for Putin, in, in, but, but, but in your view, before the war started... Well, my, my view, well in, in my view, and I expressed it uh, in, uh, in, in various ways, including uh, in a book that was published uh, a couple of years ago, that I believe that for Russia's post-Soviet foreign policy, two things were, uh, were uh, damaging, uh, were, could, could, would qualify as, uh, as huge mistakes. One is the Russian policy toward Ukraine, which essentially was no policy and reliance on money, essentially, and a few connections with a few people, which again, to me, did, did not amount to a policy. And second, uh, the preoccupation with uh, NATO enlargement. Uh, in my view, uh, the best way to, uh, to respond to NATO enlargement would be to, to, pose the United, to, po to, to put the United States in the same position of uh, peril that Russia would be put due to NATO enlargement. But just and, to be um, clear, but just to be clear on that issue, you were saying in January that you didn't believe NATO expansion was any great threat to Russia. Well, I, I said that and I, I uh, would stand by that today, but in, in, let's say in a historical way, we are at war now, Tim. Prior to 24 February, we were not at war and a lot of things could have been done differently, including and I think primarily by the West, which they were not. And uh, again, 
but my point is, if, if NATO was no threat, in which there's, there's freedom of discussion before decision is taken. And now that a national decision has been taken, you abide by that decision because it's everything that happened before uh, 24 February was of a, of a, of a, of a different uh, uh, of a different value after the 24th. But my point is that all the reasons that Russia has given, and has given many reasons for why it began this war, including NATO expansion, don't hold water, do they? There was the, the charge that Ukraine was engaged in genocide. That's what Putin said. He said what's happening in the Donbass today is genocide. Um, turned out to be a false accusation, didn't it? The case went to the UN's highest court. The ICJ was thrown out last March. Court said it had seen no evidence to support Russia's claims. Russia ignored the ruling. Uh, Tim, uh, there's uh, a tragedy to major power relations. In 1962, the United States was ready to go to war, to nuclear war with Russia, the Soviet Union then, over Soviet missiles in Cuba. Although you would agree, I think, with me that Mr. Khrushchev was not planning a nuclear attack against the United States from his Cuba positions. He was only looking for a balance. Mr. Mr. But, Trenin, uh, over the past year, since you raised the nuclear issue, over the past year, Russian officials have kept up a, a pretty constant drumbeat about Russia's nuclear weapons. Does Russia really want to move from deterrence, nuclear deterrence, to nuclear blackmail? Well, I wouldn't call it nuclear blackmail because you may call deterrence any... Well, deterrence is blackmail in a way. Well, this is, this uh, is, it, this is it, a much more dangerous game. This is do what we want well, or else, isn't is, it? It's do what uh, we yes, want but, or but, else. Yes, yes. But if you look at that from the Russian angle, and again, I do not invite you to, uh, em to empathize with, with, with the Russians, but just look at that from the Russian angle. To them, uh, a war is being waged uh, against Russia in part of the territory that used to be Russian, that is populated by Russian people, many of them. Is Russian that an people. excuse? Is that an excuse I, for I, war? We're not, we're not in a court. We will not be sitting in a court. It's, it's a totally different ballgame. A lot of people would like to... Russia to be sitting in a court. Uh, I know, I know. I don't think that they will see Russia in the dark, but they'll let them have their dreams. Do you believe Russia is actively considering first use of nuclear weapons in this uh, conflict? Let me, uh, let, me, let me tell you this. Uh, President Putin, not so long ago, raised the question whether uh, the Russian nuclear doctrine should be revised to allow for uh, preventive use of nuclear weapons. He then dismissed it in his conversation, in the same conversation. But the very fact that he raised the issue I think suggests that uh, there's some thinking done about that. It's uh, ex the whole business, the whole war in Ukraine is existential for Russia. And if you want me to quote Putin again, 
uh, I will say that uh, a while back, almost five years back or four and a half years back, he said that, um, well, we're not interested in a world without Russia. And uh, in the minds of Putin, and uh, I think a lot of people around him, uh, we are in a zone in which Russia's very existence is at stake. So I would tread very carefully. I don't see why Russia's very existence is, uh, is at stake. I can see why Ukraine's is. If Russia leaves the theater of war and goes home, the war is finished. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine is finished. They're, they're the ones who are facing existential risk, not you. You started the war. Well, uh, you would, um, I mean, suppose uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, which I think was uh, written in the Ukrainian doctrine, suppose Ukraine, uh, just for the sake of argument, had started uh, uh, a war of uh, liberation against Russia, uh, attacking Crimea and the part of Donbass that was outside Kiev's control. And uh, Ukraine would have said that we are not attacking Russia, we are just uh, uh, finishing up uh, the war that actually started back in 2014 over Crimea. And uh, now if you just uh, change the optics and look at that from the Moscow, uh, from the Moscow uh, position, then you would uh, see Russia using the same argument. Can we just come back to the present? Because um, on the subject of nuclear weapons, are you seriously saying that Putin might risk the survival of the entire planet just to get his own way in Ukraine? That's pretty close to a definition of madness, isn't it? Is he mad? Uh, I'm not suggesting that. That's uh, your expansion of what uh, I was basically saying. So how does this end? Uh, I, I how does this war I don't end? Know, uh, I don't know where, uh, where the, uh, uh, the um, uh, high command and uh, the commander-in-chief are on those issues, but uh, the countries that are trying to win a war against a nuclear superpower uh, need to need to think about the potential of nuclear becoming uh, becoming used in that conflict one way or another so i would be careful they've thought about it they've thought about it but two can play that game can't they once once you once you go to nuclear blackmail any thug can play the game can't they you go from deterrence, which has delivered certain amount of many decades of stability, and you move into a totally new and very dangerous game. Is Moscow really saying it will take us there? Well, I would uh, address the issue to those who uh, supported uh, Ukraine's uh, anti-Russian stance, those who uh, uh, gave... Uh, uh, their support to Ukraine in 2014 and, and after that. Uh, they were treading on uh, very dangerous territory. What Russia even has... though at that time, even though at that time, uh, no one in the West uh, was seriously considering uh, giving Ukraine uh, NATO membership, no one was prepared to uh, 
sit down with Russia and basically settle the issue without Ukraine becoming a NATO country, without Ukraine uh, being a, a host to NATO countries' forces in its territory. Uh, this was essentially Putin's, um, um, the gist of Putin's, uh, call it ultimatum, call it proposal, call it whatever you like, in uh, December 2021. And uh, that was um, something that people did not wish to discuss. So they made a decision to risk it, and now they're risking it. How does this end, Dmitry Trenin? Ukraine, in whatever condition it emerges from this war, is never going to forgive you, never going to forgive Russia for what it's done, for the destruction and the death and the war crimes that it's committed on its territory? I don't know how it will end. Uh, there are many options. Um, I think that uh, given uh, the stakes that are so much higher for Russia, I think that Russia will prevail over the West. Dmitry Trenin, it's good to have you on Conflict Zone. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.